Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My my guest today is Professor Gahans Ginikor who is professor of economics at Georgetown University. She studies key issues in development economics such as aspirations, informal credit and insurance markets, intra-household bargaining, social networks, tolerance and inequity. Inequality. Welcome Gahans. Hi, thank you again. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I want to start with one of your recent papers. tolerance and compromise in social networks um you say individuals typically differ in their identities their behaviors that they deem ideal for themselves and for the members of their network and in their tolerance uh, and in their tolerance for behaviors that deviate from their own ideals uh, this paper studies you say the possibility of compromise departures from one's ideal points in order to be accepted by others um we have some very large social networks now i think facebook has 2 billion people on it uh and most people have expanded um sort of the the networks they they are they are part of uh but this makes a lot of intuitive sense um you you cannot be you know sort of very rigid about your ideals uh to to join a network because the network has some variance in in behaviors and expectations right so what is the data that you're using here and uh, what are sort of the major conclusions from the paper so i'm not using any data so this is a theoretical paper so what i wanted to explore is what happened when individuals formed their social network and they they can change their behavior in order to fit in so i want to think about social interactions so that you're going to interact with people uh and when you interact with people and this is what i mean by social interaction and then we can discuss whether facebook means interacting with people or not um 
But when you interact with people, friends, colleagues, and so on, you need to spend time with them. And we, as human beings, vibe quite greatly in terms of a bunch of our behavior, attitudes, opinion, and so on. Uh, and we all have some ideal behavior. behavior. So, so in some sense, um, is, it, uh, is it the right way to think about this? Um, in some sense, in the behavior space, you have some sort of a sphere <laughs> around you, right? You are at the center and you have some leeway, uh, uh, let's call it that, that allows uh, you to move around that behavior space, but there is a limit um, beyond which you won't go. So that is sort of the tolerance limit, right? Exactly. So I might have IDs that are very liberal, I might accept people who are voicing ideas that are more conservative than what I would want to hear or what I would want in my friend. But if it's not too far from where I am, I still value their friendship. That is, it's better to be friend with them, but not. But if uh, I hear opinions that are extremely fascist or extreme right opinion, that's too far for me. My tolerance does not go. I prefer not to interact with them than to interact with them. Because if I interact with them, then hearing those opinions, hearing those uh, j just give me so much displeasure that I'm better off not having them in my social network. So you say in the paper that heterogeneity intolerance is necessary for compromise. Yes. Um, so what's the, I, the, I can what, tell you. I, yeah, what I is the intuition behind that? So yeah. you need variety in sort of the tolerance limits uh, in the members of the network for it to work. So what's the intuition behind that? It's not fully, so, fully so yeah. Let me first tell you a little bit about what happened in the paper. And then, so, so what I wanted to do in the paper is to look at a, a game, a situation in which uh, uh, people uh, think strategically. So that is, I'm going to choose a behavior and then Everybody choose their behavior, and then people decide to build their social network. So you go in a new school, you arrive on campus, and you choose how to behave, how to present yourself, how to dress, how to, to portray a certain image, a certain uh, uh, image of yourself, and then people create their social network. And I wanted to know, when is it that people are going to compromise? Then when is it who they are going to be friend with? How is it going to facilitate the creation of a, of a social network? Okay. And so what I find, as you said, is that if we are diverse in terms of identity, we all have ideal points that are very different but we all have the same tolerance level that is uh, uh, that is the distance from our ideal point that we would in which we want to see our friends behavior land um, if we all similar in that way there's no way that you can compromise so you and i might be different 
Okay, so you might be a little bit more conservative and I may be a little bit more liberal or, or the opposite. And imagine that if we did not change our behavior, we would not be acceptable to each other. That is like your view would be a bit too conservative for me. My view would be a bit too liberal for you and we prefer not to be friends. Okay, but if, um, if we just made a little effort, okay, that is we came a little bit more in the middle and the way we would talk, the way we would present ourselves, our behavior, our code of conduct would be more similar. Like in the middle, maybe we would greatly enjoy being friends. Okay, I did not change. Okay, but you're not voicing the opinions that maybe I dislike the most, and I'm not voicing the opinion that you dislike the most, and then we can greatly enjoy the friendship and do play tennis together, do whatever we do that bring us joy, and that uh, is the reason behind our friendship. Our friendship. Yeah, but um, this will be true if all the members in the network are are the same or similar and they don't have overlapping tolerance limits, right? And what I'm trying to get to is, why is the variance in tolerance is a necessary condition for compromise? For instance, I could, I could envision overlapping tolerance limits, even though there is no variance in it. You know, everybody is sort of the same, but they have slightly different identities. Yes, but then we don't need to compromise. So if you, it's possible that you're tolerant enough that you like me the way I, I am. Like that is you prefer to be friend with me even if I don't change the way I am. And I like you the way the, the symmetry in tolerance level implies that if you like me the way I am, you might prefer me in a different way, but you like me the way I am, then I like you the way you are. And so you see, we don't need to change or compromise in who we are in order to be friends. Maybe we would both be more happy if we still compromise, but we still can be friends. We can be friends. Yeah, it's really interesting. So the intolerant individuals, you call them bridges, right? Um, they sort of, uh, Another little bit counterintuitive again. Um, you say relatively intolerant individuals who can serve as bridges are critical yes. for the reciprocated compromise of more tolerant individuals. So, so they, they sort of <laughs> they, they sort of um, provide a target in some sense. So you know you can move toward a target. The target is not moving <laughs> because they're intolerant. And perhaps that's providing some flexibility in the system. Is that the way to think about it? Yes. The fact is that if someone is really intolerant, then I know that in order to be friend with them, I have to, you know, compromise and do as they wish. <laughs> uh, uh, in order to be friends with them. So if we all know that, and those people are particularly valuable in society, or we value their friendship or their business relationship and so on, they are going to force us to, if we want to be friends with them, if we want to connect, to compromise in order to be friends with them. Also, if I want to be friends with you, but you compromise in order to be friends with them, 
then that gives me more incentive. It's not just them, it's with everybody else who tend to have behavior who will concentrate towards the ideal behavior of uh, those more internet people. So after World War II in Europe, there was a little bit of a, a, a rise of maybe uh, intolerance in the middle for both extreme, both communist uh, and uh, fascism felt like dangerous ideas, and you might have what we may call intolerant moderate, people who had relatively moderate opinion, but really did not tolerate any opinion that would be too much on the left or too much on the right. And that might actually be what I show in the paper, is that that would tend to bring people towards the middle. And so that might help creating uh, a lot of social capital, a lot of social connection by bringing everybody together towards a middle. Yeah, so the, the two points you make here also, when individuals with extreme identities are symmetrically less tolerant, societies become more polarized. So that is very intuitive. In contrast, intolerance among moderates encourages cohesion. So that is sort of the, the spring effect in some sense that exactly, we talked about. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And this is, you know, by, by, by bringing everybody, you start by, you know, the fact is compromise builds on compromise because you might have people who think about in the middle of uh, a line representing political opinion, think about some people being quite intolerant and valuable to people not too far from them. Those people may want to compromise to be friends with those ones. No, yes. those people, I may want to be friends with them because I value all those business connections, I value the friendship, I value... And so we may all like start the more people become friends in that, you know, in the middle, the more maybe I want to change my, I may have very uh, extreme opinion, but maybe I want to compromise and actually not voice those opinions, not present myself this way, but just uh, uh, behave in a way that is much more like the moderate in order to be so with them. Yeah, let's go on to... Another uh, topic that you've written um, more about, uh, that's aspirations and inequality. Uh, so you have a review paper here. Uh, you said reviews the literature on aspirations in economics with a particular focus on socially determined aspirations. Uh, the core theory builds on two fundamental principles. Aspirations can serve to inspire, but still higher aspirations can lead to frustration and resentment. And, and B, aspirations are largely determined by the individual's social environment. So this has a lot of implications, especially for developing countries, right? Um, I, I would think, uh, you know, I grew up in, in South India. I remember reading an Economist article in the 80s, uh, 90s. Um, it's a small state called Kerala, and it shows very high levels of suicide rates. Um, at, at one point, uh, perhaps higher than Japan. And the hypothesis economist uh, article was pushing forward was that perhaps aspirations of people living there is a bit too high 
and uh, there's a mismatch between their aspirations, what they, they have or could accomplish. And uh, that, that might be one of the reasons. So this is, this is sort of in that direction, isn't it? Yes, actually, you know, some of the inspiration for this paper came from India, came from, you know, in Calcutta, um, where my uh, uh, in-laws family come from. Uh, uh, in Calcutta, you, you would have um, a large shanty town close to a big bridge, and for a while, uh, there was nothing above this bridge. Then you started seeing like advertisement for gated communities with air conditioning and fridge and the type of uh, housing that, you know, seemed like uh, really attractive even in the US. And this would be advertised right next to the Shantiton. And, you know, it's the same time as the Indian economy was booming. A lot of people were getting much richer, but it's also felt like that wealth or that increase in income for some group of the population was very much in the face of people who could not necessarily achieve that. And it seems to me that it's not clear to me that that would inspire people, make them want to work harder, make them feel motivated and invest more, or would actually frustrate them and discourage them. So there's a really nice, uh, you know, almost parable that it is known as a Hirschman's tunnel. Uh, that my co-author Debraj really likes to to uh, to talk about, um, and uh, Hirschman is uh, describing a, a big traffic jam, like like uh, any city in India knows, uh, where you have uh, so many lanes, no traffic is moving, you're stuck in the traffic jam for a while. Then all of a sudden, in the next lane, you start seeing the cars moving. How does that make you feel? Okay. So maybe in the beginning you feel hopeful, like you know, there's some information that is coming that maybe something is going to move. So that feels like good news. And then if it keeps on moving in the other lane and you're stuck in your lane, that's going to make you feel furious. Okay. So what we wanted to, to think about is the double edge of aspiration and linking it to inequality. So it can be that, you know, when you start in a situation where everybody is poor, there's very little wealth or the wealth that you see is extreme and hidden and it's not in your face, you know, everybody's the same, maybe your aspirations are low, okay? But as, things are changing and some people are getting richer and inequality is increasing, in the beginning, maybe it motivates you. Like there's some, you know, things that you want to mimic this, you want to get a little richer and maybe you want to invest more and it motivates you. But if inequality gets too big, then maybe your aspirations are getting out of control. You're looking at example of wealth that is incredible. It's in your face and it's unachievable for you. How does that make you feel? Like, does it motivate you to invest more? Or in fact, does it uh, stop motivating you and it totally frustrates you? Okay, so these are the things that we wanted to capture. Yeah. And 
we we were inspired by the fact that you know we have never seen uh, growth rates in the history of mankind. We have never seen growth rate uh, as high as what we are seeing in not in the recent years, but uh, uh, pre-COVID that we see in many economies, like the time for income per capita to double in China is like eight or nine years, as opposed to a time for income per capita. Uh, to double during the Industrial Revolution in England was 150 years. So, you know, incomes are rising very fast and they're rising in a very unequal fashion. Some sectors are going up, some people are getting richer. And in addition, because of social network, because of media, because it's in office, no? <laughs> you see incredible wealth in your face all the time. And the question is, do we think that it you know, motivates you or do you think that it depresses you or frustrates you? And so we wanted to build a model that would have both possibility that aspirations can motivate you or can frustrate you. And we are linking it to uh, inequality. Yeah, it's really interesting. So. If I understand this correctly, aspirations, not too cold, not too hot. <laughs> there is sort of a just right level of aspirations that that pushes you forward. Yeah. Uh, and individuals' aspirations are um, intimately connected with the social environment. So whatever is happening at the individual level is going to be governed by the, the social social environment. But it's also a sequential game, isn't it? Um, aspirations of parents, children, grandchildren, they all have some sequential effect uh, on the family as well, right? So this then gets into sort of a cultural question. So do we see, you know, cultural differences in aspirations? And, and obviously all of this is dependent on initial conditions as well. So where you start off makes a big difference um, where you're going to end up in. Yes. So what we wanted to capture is, uh, crucially, we wanted to capture the, the social aspect of aspirations. That is, you are not choosing or not entirely choosing your aspirations. Okay. Because in our model and in real life, what makes you more, the most happy might be to have very low aspirations. Okay, because what we want to think of aspiration is like a goal, a milestone that you like to achieve. And you're going to get benefit from going beyond this level of aspiration. So if I think about push-ups, <laughs> I, you know, I might have a goal of uh, making 20 push-ups. Okay, and so if I fail at my goal, uh, it's not going to give me any pleasure to have done five or to have done eight push-ups, like I still failed. But once I get close to my goal, then I get really, you know, very motivated because I'm going to get the benefit of surpassing my goal. And then I get additional benefits from going beyond those 20 push-ups, 21, 22, that feels great. Then, you know, going from 
20 to 21, like feels really great. Going from 50 to 51, the additional benefit I'm going to get from this is going to be less because I have surpassed my goal. So those benefits are, are, are diminishing. So I'm going to get benefit from surpassing my aspirations. No, so if I could choose my aspirations, I would like to have really low goal for myself. Like, you know, I would be happy if I publish one paper in 20 years. That would be, you know, if I could live with those aspirations, I would be a very happy person. But where those those aspirations come from, I'm not the one just choosing them. And that's the way we come back to life being in this place that my aspirations come from looking around me. I cannot help it. I look at colleagues who publish uh, a lot uh, every month and then I compare myself. So these things like what I see around me drive my aspirations. OK. And then the question is, of course, that does not make me necessarily happy. Having higher aspiration does not make for happiness. But the question is, sometimes it might motivate me to work hard and then my future self is going to be happy because I will have achieved more or parents who have higher aspiration might save more, invest more in their children. And that's going to be good for the kid or the, what they are going to leave to the kids. Um, or sometimes those aspirations will be too high and that's going to frustrate me, just make me miserable and I'm not going to achieve them anyway. And so it gives me no incentive to work hard because what am I going to do? I'm going to fail at those aspirations. So this is the type of idea that we wanted to capture. And if I go back to what you were saying, different culture, different, you know, level of income, where you start from, that affects you because where you are in society or your ethnic group or your uh, uh, geographical location, all these matter for what you see, no? If your aspirations are determined by who is around you, that's going to naturally like where you are in life, physically, geographically, in which group uh, and society you are, is going to affect your level of aspiration. So you can have different level of aspiration for different ethnic group within a country. You can have that if you are from a very rich family who goes to the club and goes to and uh, has a certain social life, is going that that person is going to have higher aspiration for their children than someone who is in a shanty town to start with. And so the aspirations are going to be determined by a mix of your own characteristic, your own income level, your own ethnic group and so on, and the uh, distribution of income in the society and the, the your own characteristic will filter what you see of that distribution that then affects your aspirations. Yeah, yes. so the, I think in some sense it's changing, right? So we have some examples of societies like Finland, for example, um, where society's characteristics are more uniform and the individual's goals are um, fairly uniform. 
And Finland always comes from top in terms of happiness uh, among countries. Um, and it's sort of the same application here, right? So uh, what you're saying, if I understand this correctly, is that your aspirations is a function of where you are. Um, there is, you say that it's a combination of individual's characteristics and let's say income level and the distribution of income around you. So that is a social environment. Um, would you say as we look forward, the individual's characteristic is going to be less important? Uh, the reason I'm asking is we have policy questions now such as minimum basic income. Uh, as a tool. People are losing jobs due to artificial intelligence and so on. So the minimum basic income is sort of making the field even, right, in some sense. Uh, so do you see that as a policy choice, it could actually have a beneficial effect on happiness on society? So the minimum uh, basic income would reduce inequality maybe at the bottom. Uh, I don't know if that's going to be enough given the incredible uh, rate of growth of very high income of the top 1%, even worse, the top 0.1% uh, uh, income and wealth is growing at an incredible rate. I'm not sure how much uh, uh, of a dent it's going to do in terms of reducing the inequality. But what we are saying is that at a moment where, so you could think about starting with two hypothetical initial distribution of income and start with a world where you have, you know, a little bit of inequality, but not too high. Okay, like maybe your example of Finland to start with. And what's going to happen is you have some inequality it means that your aspirations are not going to be my aspiration and so on, but there's going to be a tendency if my aspirations are a bit high, but not too high, it's going to motivate me. So if I'm a little bit below in the distribution, seeing other people that are above me in the distribution is going to motivate me and I will want this for my kids, I will want that for my future self, I'm going to invest, save, try to increase future income at the cost of today's consumption. But so it means that my income is going to see or my children's income is going to be higher than my own income. I'm going to see quite a bit of growth because those aspirations are going to motivate me to invest in future opportunities. OK, while people who are at the top of those distribution might be less motivated because they're already at the top of the distribution. And so compared to where they are, their aspirations are not that high. And so they're a bit less motivated to try to catch up. And so in this case, aspirations are going to motivate people to like that are below to catch up with people who are higher up. And you're going to tend to see a convergence in income other forces and shocks means that, you know, you can be hit with shocks and not everybody will end up with the same income, but there's a, a source of pressure towards equalization. Now, start with another society like the United States where there's a lot of inequality, okay? And in that case, what you might have is have a bunch of people 
who are in the distribution who are so low in terms of income compared to the rest, but see quite a bit what happens at the top. They see TV shows that are always about wealthy people and so on, and their aspirations are so high that it frustrates them. Like that, you know, there's no way they can achieve them. It's too high, it's too hard. It would require too much of a sacrifice to reach my aspiration. And so that, you know, I, I give up. It does not motivate me. While you have a, a bunch of people who might be in the upper part of the income distribution where the previous logic applied. You know, they're upper middle class, they see the very rich and they want some part of it, but it motivates them and they're going to want to invest a lot to try to mimic the rich and they're going to be more hungry for future benefits and that's going to motivate them. So these two groups of people are going to be like diverging. You're going to have ever increasing inequality. You're going to have the top where people are comparing themselves to each other. They're like, oh, my neighbor has this much. And so I want my kid to have a yacht too. And then they have an helicopter and I want a helicopter too. And I want to mimic them. And it, it makes me want to invest a lot in my children, maybe potentially have fewer children to be able to invest a lot in catching up. And then while at the bottom, you're going to have people who are giving up and are not motivated, not investing a lot. And between those two groups have ever increasing inequalities. So if you start with an initial situation where things are not too different, you might have pressure for equalization in the distribution. But if you start with groups that are quite different to start with, they are going to be ever expanding inequality like we tend to see. So would a minimum income be enough to stop that? I don't know. Like, uh, you know, maybe you need a lot of taxation at the top too and <laughs> to compress a lot the distribution before so they, they, being able to get at a situation where uh, you get that aspirations are forced for equalization. So the initial conditions matter uh, for yeah. equilibrium. Um, so as you say, uh, Finland's equilibrium is, you know, it's sort of self-equilibrating to, uh, you know, to, to more equality. Whereas the U.S.'s initial conditions are so varied that it's going to continue to diverge um, and inequalities continue to rise. Uh, and that's what we see in the data too, right? So I want to go into another set of papers that you have, which I found really, really interesting. Um, one of them is electoral systems and inequalities in government interventions. Um, so this paper studies the political determinants of inequalities in government interventions under majoritarian and proportional representation systems. Uh, so majoritarian is uh, one one uh, the winner takes all type system, right? So it is sort of like a like a senatorial elections, perhaps uh, proportional representation is more like a Congress. Is that the way to think about it? Yeah, 
so if you think about uh, proportional representation, you think about uh, the equivalent in the US would be the national uh, popular vote. So this is saying that what is uh, often discussed is thinking about every vote contributes and then you tally the vote to see uh, uh, who wins the election. So think about pro a proportional representation system as the uh, national popular vote. While when you think about a uh, majoritarian system, you have electoral districts, okay, states in the United States, and you think about um, within those states, you have, uh, you win the state, you win the electoral district, if you have the majority of the vote in that district. So it's a winner take all, within each uh, electoral system. So this is what happened in the United States. This is also what happens in India uh, uh, for the parliament. You, you have a um, winner take all within electoral district. And so what we wanted to know is what, uh, uh, what does the electoral system means in terms of incentive to provide the local public. So if you think about uh, uh, leaders, uh, leaders provide uh, public goods, but often those public goods are what schools, uh, roads, uh, 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 hospitals, and those goods are located in one place. No, you don't put them anywhere. You put them in specific place. So this is what we call local public good in the sense that they benefit people who live there, but they don't benefit people who don't live there. And they are the source of quite a bit of inequality. Okay, we have, you know, huge differences across village in India in terms of uh, uh, public goods that have been provided, and they can create quite a bit of difference across region. And we wanted to know uh, what was the incentive of politicians when they're campaigning, trying to get vote? What are the incentive and how do they differ across those two systems? So there's, you know, uh, a lot of literature has emphasized that a majoritarian system might be more unequal. Okay, might be more unequal. Why? For a very good reason. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, big mechanism is uh, uh, you only need to win 50% of the vote in 50% of the district in order to uh, win the election. And so that might give you a lot of reason to give up and not provide the local public good to a bunch of uh, uh, region. While in a proportional representation, a priori, getting your vote from wherever is going to contribute to winning the election, and so you might uh, want to spread it equally. That logic is really, really powerful and is a very, very uh, important result to keep in mind. But there's something else happening. When you have, uh, when you say that in a proportional representation system, you can get the votes from wherever, it means that if your voters are not the same, if they differ, maybe you have reason to go and get all your votes from
from some specific location. And so it's not clear to us, it was not clear to us that the literature had paid attention to the fact that in a majoritarian system, yes, you only need to win 50% of the district, okay? But another way to view that is to say you need to win at least 50% of the district. That in a proportional representation system, you might actually want to get most of your votes from some specific location. So what we do is to think about locations, about villages, think about municipalities, think about county in the US, and to whom you're going to give like local public good to try to get the election. And there's some characteristic of those locations, those county or those villages, or that are going to make them very responsive to your promises to give a local public good. So it can be an responsive in terms of electoral gain. It's their population size that's good, but also their turnout rate. Having many people, if they don't show up, does not help you very much for the election. It's their what's called in the literature swingness, that is like how responsive they are to electoral promises. It can be their level of information. And we characterize, we call all those characteristics of a locality, we call them sensitivity. Okay? And in a proportional representation system, it's quite simple. You have those local public goods, you want to allocate them to win votes, you're going to give more in places that are very sensitive and less in places that are not very sensitive. Okay? So this is the way you get the more bang for your buck. That is, you get the most electoral votes for the budget that you have to allocate for local public good. Okay? Now, in a majoritarian system, it's a little bit different. What turns out to matter is not just the sensitivity of a location or a village of a county, but it's its relative sensitivity. That is, its sensitivity compared to the other locality that compose that electoral district. Okay? So it's not just whether your county has a high turnout or a low turnout, but how does it compare to the other county in your district? So if I take two, let me take two county, but located in two different states in the US, okay? And think about they have the same population, but, and they have the same uh, turnout and information and so on. All their sensitivity is the same. But the county uh, that is on the left, is surrounded by other counties that are not very informed, not very, uh, don't turn out more, much, uh, are not very sensitive to electoral promises and so on. While the county on the right is surrounded by other counties that are very informed, very sensitive, they turn out a lot and so on. In a majoritarian system, the county on the left that is relatively sensitive is going to be very attractive to me. The county on the right that is relatively insensitive 
compared to the other in its electoral district is not going to be very attractive. And so this is going to, uh, what's going to matter is the relative sensitivity of the county that is going to characterize whether I want to give a lot or not. In addition, there's also the pivotability of the, you know, of the entire district uh, that is going to be very important. But so yeah. it's a little different, and this might be saying if you know if you live in places that are quite homogeneous, that is your electoral district have county that are quite similar, then you know whether one is very sensitive as long as it's surrounded in its electoral district by other county that are very sensitive. And the other one is not very sensitive, but surrounded by other places that are not very sensitive. They're going to be similar to me. And so that's going to make me want to treat them in a similar fashion. While in a proportional representation system, I may want to go and target like the very sensitive one and leave out the very sensitive one. So it's a it's an optimization problem that uh... In the, um, you know, I, I was thinking that in the greatest and largest democracies of the world, it's all about buying votes, right? <laughs> uh, how do you buy just enough votes to get elected? Uh, it's not really about policies. It's not really about um, anything, really. It is a, a vote, but how do I best deploy my limited resources to buy just enough votes to get elected. That is the problem, right? Yes. And then the question is, uh, you know, when does it get uh, cheaper to do it uh, by using public policy, like uh, public good, uh, as opposed to actually vote buying by giving cash to people, as it's still very frequent in some society, uh, already become a source of progress. But it's clear that there's a lot of discretion in the way politicians are using uh, public resources in order to get elected. And, you know, we try, uh, as society, try to put formulas, try to reduce the amount of discretion that politicians might have in order to favor some, uh, some location versus the other. But you need to leave some discretion because sometimes it's for good reason that you need to give more to one place than the other. But whenever you leave discretion, there's also incentive to use it for the politician to use it in his favor. You have another paper along the same lines. Uh, it's also quite interesting. So political reservations as term limits. And I think you're looking at India here again. You say, while political reservations aim to ensure a more equal representation for women and disadvantaged groups, they also impose effective term limits on many incumbent politicians who would otherwise have had a chance to uh, contest elect elections again. So by decreasing the future electoral prospects of politicians, next period uh, reservations may affect politicians' present resource allocations and worsen elite capture. Um, so this is this is a problem, actually. I would imagine in in most democracies. So you know they have a lot of talk about term limits in the U.S., as you know, 
um, term, term limits generally has a beneficial effect, generally speaking. Uh, but what you're highlighting here is that um, term limits could, <laughs> could have different behavioral uh, outcomes uh, from the politicians, right? How they allocate resources, where they deploy them, and, and how do they treat uh, people uh, in their constituencies and, all, and, and so on, right? So before we get into that, how does political reservations act as a, a sort of a term, um, term limit mechanism? How, what, what happens there? So what happens there is when you want to put gender quota or quotas for scheduled caste and scheduled tribe, like in India, that are minorities and you want to put quotas, you have different ways to do it. Either you're trying to, as many countries have done, you're trying to say we need that many women running for election, but then you're not guaranteed that you're going to have any women elected or we need that many minorities running for election. But then again, you're not too sure that you're going to end up with the same percentage that what you're trying to impose in power. So what many countries have done is to do reservations. That is declare that some seats are going to be at times devoted to a minority or devoted to a woman. Okay? This is a way to guarantee a certain representation of a minority of a woman. Of a woman. There, there are two things there, right? So one is, so if seats are randomly allocated to women and minorities, then that clearly, um, clearly creates a term limit issue for incumbents because uh, the seat may not be there for them if, if they're randomly allocated. So that makes a lot of sense. But the, but the second point in the paper is that um, if you have a term limit, how does your behavior change? Um, what type of resource allocation decisions do you make, right, if you have a term limit? And it's quite interesting, you know, um, so, so I think if I understand this correctly, but what you're saying is that if I have a term limit, um, I'm going to sort of focus my resources to some groups who are already doing doing well, because I'm going to get out of you know get out of power in the future, so I can go back to these guys and get get benefits from them, as opposed to allocating resources across a wide cross section of population. So right. A weakness of the paper is that we cannot actually see what happens. So we don't know exactly what you get out from favoring the elite or not. What we started is the premise that there's quite a, a large literature documenting quite a lot of elite capture, that uh, uh, land ownership is uh, a, a clear defining characteristic of elite in, in uh, uh, rural India. And so what we are seeing is that this is an empirical paper. So what we are seeing is that empirically, when you're term limited, because you don't have to run again, you tend to give them more than when you're not term limited and you tend to then give more BPL cards that are supposed to go to poor household, to poor household, less to landed elite and so on. That matches one of the benefits of having election, okay? That, you know, you were talking about vote buying 
or getting vote as a bad thing, but it all depends on what yeah, your incentive. Getting the votes may means that you want to give some benefits to poor uh, households. If you have local public goods that benefit like street blocks, then you know there might be more household uh, where you have a poor scheduled caste, scheduled tribe, household might live in a highly populated block, and maybe your incentive to get a lot of votes makes you do the right thing, that is give it to the people who would benefit the most, because those are the ones that would be the most grateful uh, to you, because if it's local public goods, you can you know, make many people happy. And so the election here, the incentive to get the votes might make you want to do what economists call the social planner want you to do that is to benefit you know largely the population but when you don't have what we are seeing is you give more to the elite we are not seeing exactly what you get out of it is it something about a quid pro quo is it a reversion of you know uh ingrained hierarchy where you tend to benefit some people? Is it clearly I scratch your back and you scratch mine? Or is it just, uh, you know, the natural tendency from internalizing power hierarchy? We, we, we are not seeing that. We, we don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, at the highest level, it's disheartening um, to really conclude that politics and representative democracies are really businesses. Um, it has nothing to do with uh, making the right policy. It has nothing to do with developing the country. It's all about business. Um, I, I, you know, um, in so as long as what we are not we are not saying that it has nothing to do we are saying you could have that you care about catering to the elite you could care about the social good and you could care about your re-election um, probability okay and what we are saying is that if we lower and we remove that benefit from, you know, re-election probability, you're going to do more towards the elite. So you could have a worldview where what that our paper is compatible with people caring to some extent about doing the right thing, but just that uh, they care about doing the right thing, but they also care about the elite and they also care about getting reelected. And when you remove, because it, in this case, getting reelected and doing the right thing might, you know, go together. That is look, giving a BPL card to people who need it the most, giving a, uh local public good in more populated streets are the way to get votes but is also what you kind of want to do um uh reducing your your electoral concern is going to make you do more of maybe what we don't want you to do is to benefit the elite okay now so what we are we are a bit agnostic in terms of whether politicians are like you know, do not care at all about the, the social good, or they care to some extent, but it's not their only concern. Now, 
I leave you to your view of, uh, you know, optimism or not. If we look at the climate, clearly they don't seem to care so much about doing any of the right things. So uh, maybe the cynic view is uh, more appropriate, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, um, I haven't really studied democracies in Europe. I don't know what really happens there, but between India and the US, um, the, the dominant factor in a politician's objective function is getting elected. It's very clear. Um, and given that dominant objective, yeah, they might do some good things, you know, uh, maybe you know, there is sort of overlap with objective. Uh, but they make a lot of noise around the good thing. Um, but the dominant objective appears to be getting elected again. Um, so <laughs> yes, unfortunately, it seems that there's a lot of uh, short-term incentive. Yes, uh, and so um, yeah. Yes. No, no. I sometimes wonder. You know. Um, Representative democracies, this is not in the paper, but I want to get your perspective. Uh, has that system, is that system really working anymore? Are there alternatives to representative democracies? For example, direct democracy uh, would be a way to think about it. So we have technology now. Can we put policies in front of the people and let the people select policies? Put them. So again, you know, it depends also. So there's a large literature that is showing that who sets the agenda has a lot of power. So look at uh, the cases where referendum have been used uh, in Europe um, that is then a direct vote is telling for a specific issue uh, what do the people think. Um, the way these referendum have been used, the time they're called, often they end up being like a veto policy or vote of confidence against the leader. They tend to be called at strategic time. And so you cannot avoid some amount of manipulation. And so who would decide what to uh, when do you ask to people, how do you phrase the question and so on? And then can you again, you know, money is clearly is no way, no ideal models of democracy, no? And so the amount of money that is going in the back of election campaign contribution and so on, now would you have the same amount of money that is going to be lobbying on whatever issue that gets put to the public? to convince them one way or the other. Look at the discussion on vaccine. And there's a lot of money that is <laughs> going around and campaigning and so on to convince people one way or the other in terms of vaccine that has very little to do with the scientific evidence that we have. So, so, so that makes me worry too. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure what would happen in a in a way where we get rid of representative, I don't know. It strikes me that uh, uh, tight regulation, campaigning, tight regulation in lobbying might be more important. But um, yeah, and then there is a size issue, right? So what we see in New Zealand uh, is quite different from what we see in India and the United States. And so 
you know, how does a small system behave? Um, seems like, you know, New Zealand is doing, doing really well with representative democracy, but it is really the large systems that appear to have big problems. Part of it is leadership. Uh, if you don't have good leaders, you are in, uh, you are in deep trouble anyway. Yes, I think that there's the system. There's also something that that might have to do with culture and morality and things where, as an economist, I think I have very little to say. But, you know, we all have opportunities in our daily life to do the right things or to serve our private interest. And it seems to me that... Yes, when the incentives are big, then as an economist, I know that, you know, uh, most likely we are going to act in our own interest, but there's still something else. No, when the stakes are not too big, we are able to do the right things. No, when, because uh, there's a little bit of morality, sometimes religion, sometimes something in us that is like, you know, making us do the right thing, even when our incentives are not. And maybe I think uh, we have a recent book that, that, that I, have, I just saw that is uh, talking about a, a generation of sociopaths who wound uh, America. The, the, the question is like, are we, is there something else than our incentive? Our incentives are there, they're just getting bigger. There's more money in the system, the size, the heterogeneity, a lot of things that makes it difficult. But do we need something else like morality, religion, honesty, or something that would be ingrained? But it seems to me that we live, uh, we are venerating money and we are venerating uh, uh, fame and power for the sake of it and maybe, <laughs> Maybe that plays a role too, no? Yeah, let's let's be optimistic uh, as we look forward. Uh, <laughs> this has been great, uh, Garang. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you. Thank you, Gil. Thank you. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.